All right, after having prayed, we will now continue to look in Isaiah. We're in the very last part of Isaiah chapter 52 this morning. Um, if anybody needs notes, they're up here. This is just the last three or four verses of Isaiah 52. Now, where we left off last week, we were looking at verses 7 through 10. Now, we've been almost 52 chapters into Isaiah, and now all of a sudden it seems like things are picking up. A lot has been spoken of by the Lord, about the Lord, and about the terrible situation of the people of Israel and how they needed a Redeemer. And they really didn't know if God loved them anymore, didn't really know if God was going to rescue them anymore. Even though if they believed the scriptures they had, they would believe that. So their situation was desperate. They needed a redeemer. A redeemer had been talked about, but we see in verses 7 through 10 of Isaiah 52 that he is coming. We see in verse 7, we read that... Um, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of he who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So a messenger is coming, according to that verse. And then in verse 8, we see the watchman seeing him coming. Verse 8 says, the voice of your watchman, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord of Zion. So the watchmen see, the watchmen see the Redeemer coming, the Lord returning to Zion. First we have the message, now we have the Lord coming. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see that it's the Lord Himself who is coming. Break forth together into singing, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So after all this time, finally we see the Lord coming to Zion, the Redeemer, the one who is going to redeem Israel. He is coming. The watchman sees him and he announces it. And so that's going to set up the rest of the book of Isaiah. And it's going to start out in the fourth servant song, which we will get to this morning. But we have one small section to cover before we get to that. And that is Isaiah 52, verses 11 and 12. And uh, I will appoint um, Jen, if you will read that for us, please. Verse 11. 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. <clears throat> okay. Now, um, we see here that 
God tells them to leave the land of Babylon, and actually it will be the land of Persia soon, because it's still the land of Babylon, but the Persians will send them home. God tells them to leave the land of Babylon and leave the, their filth behind. In verse 11, depart, go out, touch nothing unclean. Leave the filth of Babylon behind. Leave the filth of the world behind. You see your Redeemer coming. I've showed him to you. Now you're going to be going back to the land and you're going to leave everything in Babylon behind you. Don't touch anything. So they were to make a clean break from Babylon. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's look and... Uh, I will have our pastor. If he will read for us, go ahead and look up Ezra 8, verses 21 through 23, and Jill, Revelation 18, verse 4 through 5, and Bud, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Did you mean Jill or Michelle? <laughs> it jumped. Oh. Uh, Michelle, yeah. Yeah, Michelle. Uh, I'm sorry. Revelation 18, 4 through 5. Yeah. Now, remember what God has said to them. And let's all turn to Ezra, which is what our pastor is going to read from us. Ezra is a little before Job and Psalm and all that. All right, Ezra 8, verses 21 through 23. You ready for me to read? I am ready, yes. yes. From the ESV. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river, Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good um, on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. All right, they were going to be leaving the land of Babylon, even though the Persians controlled it. The king of Persia was sending them back to the land, back to Jerusalem. But the first thing is... Ezra says is we humbled ourselves before God to seek a safe journey back to Babylon. Okay? And then the king of Persia offered to send soldiers and horsemen to protect them. However, he told him the hand of our God is for good on us, on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So he offered him a military unit to go to keep the people of Israel safe on their journey back to Jerusalem. And Ezra says no. He says the good hand of God is upon us. We don't need your horsemen. We don't need your soldiers. 
We trust in the Lord. He did not want the sight or the smell of these Persians around them. He was leaving the world. He was doing what God said in Isaiah to leave them and touch no unclean thing. Not a sight or a smell of one of those soldiers did he want with them. He was just a little band of helpless Israelites, but he knew the good hand of God was upon them. And he said, thanks, but no thanks. They fasted and prayed. He realizes that God is drop-dead serious about leaving the world and touching nothing unclean. He didn't want them back in Jerusalem. He would rather them be wiped out than to have those Persian soldiers with them. He preferred death to that. All right, Revelation 18, 4 and 5. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her flags. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Yep, come out, do not share in her plagues. The sins are heaped high unto heaven, and God will not forget them. God will not forget. Now, the thing about it is, Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. We don't need anything to do with the world anymore. I mean, we have to, you can't leave the world. You have to be in the world. But the world, you don't pick up any of the ways of the world. You separate yourself morally as much as you can from the world. All right, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and work among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Yeah, Paul quotes this passage in Isaiah that we read. And um, he, he realizes that how serious God is about leaving the world behind. Uh, God is our Father. He walks among us. And we don't need to have Persian soldiers around us, so to speak, if you will. Let's all turn to James chapter 4. so important nowadays because the world I mean the church has just adopted the ways of the world we don't leave the world behind we bring it right into the church with us so many times maybe not too bad here but a lot of places it is bad alright James chapter 4 verse 4 
James says, you adulterous people. Now he's talking to Christians here. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Can't have them both. You can't have them both. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, that's a decision. I'm one with the world. A person that does that is an enemy of God, but a person who loves God, keeps his commandment, will be an enemy of the world. So you can't have them both. It is spiritual adultery to have the ways of the world. You remember, God's our husband. If you're a Christian, God is your husband. And if you are having an affair with the world, you're an adulterer, spiritual adulterer. There's a book Jay Adams has out called A Thirst for Holiness. And he has some good comments on this. It's pretty brief. But I want to read this to you, what Jay Adams says about this verse, about this passage. He says, it is because worldly Christians are unfaithful to their husband that James addresses all such as adulteresses. Christians are married to Christ. To center one's affection on another is spiritual adultery. James may have picked up on Christ's words about an evil and adulterous generation. <clears throat> in drawing this all to accurate description. But the figure of God as the husband of Israel was familiar to the Old Testament saints as well. And he cites about three or four passages. In the context, James is saying that you can't expect God to answer your prayers when you, his wife, are running around with somebody else. Frequently, excuse me, all adultery including spiritual adultery, as James is careful to observe, is a matter of choice. No one must commit this sin. He says, whoever determines to be a friend of the world thereby makes himself an enemy of God. If spiritual adultery is a choice, then God will hold you entirely responsible for it. There's never a time when it will be excused. He says later on, he says, are you in bed with the world? You're married to Christ, are you in bed with the world? So that's why James calls them adulterers. Because these people that James is writing to is having an affair with the world. And God is telling the people of Israel, you've had an affair with all these idols while you've been in Babylon. You have to leave those behind. You have to be faithful to me. You cannot continue to commit spiritual adultery. Your Redeemer is coming. You're going to beat him. You need to prepare yourself for him and get out of bed with every man that comes along, so to speak. Okay, that's all I have on that passage. Anybody want to add anything to it? Charles? Uh, two things. First of all, um, I think we 
are at a great disadvantage if we think of the, quote, world as this neutral place where we all exist. And, uh, you know, our, our job is, say, in studying passages like this to be more faithful to Christ in our personal, spiritual lives. Um, but the world is not a neutral place. It is a place that is the battlefield between the, the victorious power of Christ versus that of Satan. So we are constantly moving toward greater or lesser aspects of that battle. And we know how it will ultimately turn out. Um, and I think one of the great victories of satanic forces came, you know, with the era we roughly call the Enlightenment and, you know, the... Uh, and to some extent, you could also blame the Roman Catholic Church with its, with its introduction of Thomistic and Greek thought that has influenced that way of thinking. The, uh, the people of Jesus' time and the Israelites in that time were at, at a better advantage in the sense that it was very clear and on full display that when you identified with a particular culture, with a particular king, with a particular government, you were identifying with the gods of that place and that person. Uh, and that they were all intertwined. So we've been bamboozled and hoodwinked to think that that's no longer the case, that there's this neutral area called the world and, and government and science and all of these that, uh, you know, it's just objective. There, there's none of that there, which is totally false. Yeah. No neutral ground. Okay, anybody else? Chase? Uh, I think, I mean, that's obviously extremely important here, what we read in James and Isaiah, about coming out and being separate from the world, but I think amongst Christians, there seems to be a lot of disagreements about what worldliness even is. So I think a lot of them would agree that, yeah, we've got to be separate, but what does that mean as how, our, how, how it looks in our lives? I think there might be a lot of confusion out it's any system of belief other than the Christian belief. It's the best I can describe it. <clears throat> John gives close to a definition of it in John chapter, 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But it's the world system that's aligned against God. Any system of belief that does not derive itself from Scripture would be the world. There's nothing neutral. It's either scriptural or it's non-scriptural. Black and white. Yeah, that's important. There's no, no neutrality yeah. there. And Jesus said it. Uh, either for us or against, or against us. Yeah. It's black and white. <clears throat> yeah. Now don't get mixed up. There is common ground between the believer and unbeliever. We're all created in the image of God. We all have the work of the law written in our heart. So there is common ground. You can communicate spiritual truths with unbelievers. But nothing's neutral. There is no neutral ground. We're at war at every point with unbelievers. Complete antithesis in everything we believe with what the world believes. Anything else? Well, I just yep. was wondering if Chase was referencing like people that adopt a more monastic uh, lifestyle 
let's say Mennonites or something that you know really separate themselves um, in their lifestyle. You talking about professing Christians that do that, or right that they they interpret you know these portions of Scripture that say come out from them and be clean to um, we have to retreat. Oh yeah, completely from the world. Yeah, it's it's not physical separation; it's moral separation. You can't physically separate. You can't. I mean, the monks tried to do that right. back in early Christianity, and they were no worldly good at all. Right. You want to answer something? I was just going to say. I was just thinking in line that there's so many uh, varieties of that among in the church. That could be one of them. Um, you know, the, the fundamentalist movement, like. Um, separating yourself from the world is how you do your hair, how you you know wear your clothes, or there's also just the whole culture of entertainment. Christians are divided in that, like how much should we be immersed in that versus how much should we stay away from it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it has to do with wisdom, I think. But it's um, maybe there's no like what you said. I mean, this just seems to be a, a Follow the scriptures, the system of, of God's words, and the system of the world. But but there may be a time to leave the world. I mean, the pilgrims left Holland and came to America yeah. for that very reason. They saw their children being corrupted by the environment and the worldliness. So I don't know yeah. if that's always wrong to separate from the world. Yeah. Yeah, there could be a time, and they were actually going into a worse place. <clears throat> And they left over there. I mean, we had the Indians over here that were idol worshippers. So, yeah, you got well. There, there's a time to leave places. There is right. There's a kind yeah. of separation where you use your discernment yeah. to separate. And even within the Christian community, we separated from the PCA. Yeah, for very good reasons. Yeah, Bill. Some years ago, I was reading a history of the Pentecostal and holiness movements by a man who grew up in that uh, environment and also was a bona fide historian. And he was pointing out that in the earliest days of those movements, they typically were populated by uh, lower income, you know, less prosperous folks. Who, you know, the holiness church was way on the other side of town, on the other, you know, across the track kind of thing. And he said that. Uh, it was interesting that they seemed to have built into their system of, he didn't have to use the term sanctification, a standard of holiness and separation from the world that really reflected their financial circumstances. For example, bless God, we don't have choir robes. That's worldly. We don't have choir robes. And he said, what you find over time as these churches became more prosperous, the choir robes showed up. I don't, we don't believe in taking insurance. We don't have insurance. That's against the scripture. And then once they can afford it, they start getting the insurance. So, I, I knew a, a Pentecostal preacher in North Carolina when I lived there, and he grew up near Raleigh. And he said, I knew a guy that worked on my father's farm that he said, I will never, ever drink uh, a canned drink because it looks too, somebody might mistake it as a beer can. I don't mind thinking I'm drinking beer. But he had a problem drinking it out of a bottle, a Coke bottle. And he said, the thing is, there was tons of moonshine that was being passed around in Coke bottles. So you, you get into some difficult territory with trying to decipher how. 
you know, holiness and separation can be measured some of these ways. My advice is, like I said before, know the scriptures right. and have your baloney detector on, right? <laughs> yeah. Discrimination is good. Oh, yeah. You've got to be discriminating. As long as you use God's standard. And sometimes it's divisive. Mm -hmm. You know, that was one of the things with churches that didn't want creation study group or AIG or places like that to come into it is they didn't want to create trouble in the, in the congregation. Yeah. But sometimes, well, most of the time, Scripture is divisive. Separates the sheep from the goats. All right, good discussion. Okay, Mike, I believe you're up next. We're going to start the fourth servant song today, and here we have a handout. I can get somebody to hand out. Page 74 here. One of the McMaster. Yeah, one of the McMaster. Yeah. Not really stronger for the construction. And while Owen's handing that out, we will have Mike to read us. In the rest of chapter 52. Okay. Should I just read that while it's passing? Yeah. Okay. That's starting at verse 13. That's correct. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told, for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Okay, this is known as the fourth servant song. The previous chapter ended by, or section ended by showing that their Redeemer is coming. And they most likely were very excited. The Redeemer is coming. Here he comes. But they were horrified when they see him. What happens in the last part of chapter 52 and chapter 3? It's not exactly the kind of redeemer they were expecting. They were horrified. This is a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. The redeemer they saw coming in chapter 52. This teaches us the substitutionary atonement. Um, the title of, the, of this section in the ESV study Bible is the Lord's servant the exalted sin bearer and then it notes that this section is the most quoted passage in the New Testament now 
Like I said, this is the crucifixion of Christ and it teaches the substitutionary atonement. Anybody want to tell me what the substitutionary atonement means? Danny, you got your hand up? No. Oh, okay. You're scratching your head. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's got to pay. Somebody has to pay. There is no such thing, ultimately, as the forgiveness of sins. Somebody has to bear the sins. We deserve it, right? We deserve God's wrath. But Jesus Christ is our substitute. He suffered what we deserve. He suffered that on the cross. Now, I want to get one thing important uh, right up front. I have heard, I don't know how many times in my life, that the, the, it's kind of like this when Christ saved us from our sins. It would be kind of like the judge pronouncing the death sentence on a person and then another person coming up and saying, you can kill me instead of him. I love this man. I'll suffer the death sentence. Let him go. Is that accurate? He substituted himself for another person. Does that, y'all think it's a trick question? It's got to be a trick question. He's good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's... Well, not anyone can substitute. Right, it has to be yeah. somebody that qualified, right? Yes, yes, I no. I don't think it's a yes and a no here. I think analogies fall apart. Yeah. I mean, it's a bad analogy anyway. What would be a more accurate analogy would be the judge passing the death sentence on the guy and then the judge stepping down, taking off his robe and saying, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed instead of you. There's no third party. God suffers God himself suffers what we deserve. Um, it's not another person that steps in. It's a death sentence upon himself. The judge himself is a substitute for the guilty man. That's a better analogy. I mean, there's no perfect analogy, but I really think the first one is really bad, really bad theology. So we see in the crucifixion God the Son suffering the very pains of hell that we deserve. Y'all agree with me on that about? Okay, there's no third party. All right, now the uh, this passage can be outlined as followed. I took this basically from Portland in his commentary. Uh, the part that was just read to us is the servant's success. And then the first three verses of the next chapter, it is a servant's suffering. And then the middle part would be the servant's significance. And then we go back to the servant's suffering. And then the servant's success. It's kind of inverted there. With the very heart of it being verses 4 through 6.
All right, the people of Israel were very likely asking how God in his holiness could still do good to them if they were as bad as he kept saying they were. Isaiah kept revealing to them their wickedness. So they were probably wanting to know how God, being a holy God, could possibly make things right with them, except them. And this question is also applied to God's elect in every generation. All men are sinners. There's no one good. There's not even one. And so how can men of any generation be accepted by a holy God since every single man in every generation has been a sinner? And that's the question we're going to answer next week when we look at Isaiah 53 and the last part of 52 also. But this would be a good place to stop. It's 1040. Anybody have anything to add to what we've talked about so far today? All right. I'll ask Chase if he'll close us in prayer today. Thank <laughs> you.